1: Hello, folks. This episode is sponsored by italki, which is a great option if you want to practice your speaking because practice makes perfect. Um, So, yes, you can speak to people regularly uh, using Skype. Uh, it's brilliant. You can set your own schedule. You can choose your teacher. You can agree on things like all the things you'd like to do. If there are specific things you'd like to talk about, you can kind of give those. Or if you've got uh, specific needs, for example, if you want to practice for a job interview or if you are trying to fix your CV or, you know, any number of reasons, you can get all that kind of stuff sorted out on italki. And if you buy some talking time, italki will send you a voucher uh, worth $10. Um, Just uh, to get that offer, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. Here is part two of my interview with the famous linguist, Professor David Crystal. In this one, I asked him some questions from my listeners. I didn't get a chance to ask all of the questions I received, so if your question isn't included, then I do apologise. I left out some questions just because I think he'd already answered them in one way or another, or because we just didn't have enough time. But the questions I did ask him covered quite a wide range of different topics, including the way that foreign words get absorbed into English, predictions for the future of English, how to deal with the workload of studying linguistics at university, the nature of English syntax how languages affect the way that we think and see the world, Uh, why British people use indirect and polite language, the influence of artificial intelligence on language learning, the effects of Brexit on English in the world, whether it's appropriate to speak like Ali G, some study tips and also some comments on the English of Donald Trump and Barack Obama. Don't forget to check out the uh, website for David Crystal, which is davidcrystal.com, where you can see a reading list of David's books, you can read his blog, you can see videos of him in action, and you can even contact him by email. I would just like to thank David again for his time, and I hope that all of you out there in podcast land enjoy listening to our conversation. So here is part two, starting right now. Okay, um, I'm going to move on to some questions from my listeners. And the first one is from uh, Hamid in Pakistan. And Hamid says, I'm an English language teacher. My question for David Crystal is, the Oxford Learners Dictionary has a lot of new words from Urdu, such as badam, chai, alu, bag, dana, and many more. If English keeps on taking words from Urdu or any other language, then what will be the future of English? I mean, English will, uh, will English no longer be English? What's your take on this?
0: Well, this is the story of English, actually, from the very, very beginning. Uh, a metaphor I like to use is to say that English is a vacuum cleaner of a language. Mm. Uh, it goes around the world, it sucks in words from every other language that it's come into contact with. Now, nobody knows exactly how many other languages have influenced English in this way, but the figure is somewhere between 300 and 600 because a lot depends on on when the you know where the word actually came from. Or did it come in directly from one language or go via another, mm-hmm. and and so on. But at least three hundred languages yeah. have 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 had words come into English right from the very beginning. And if you look at English today. Um, where you say, where are the Germanic words? English is an Anglo-Saxon language. You find that they're there. Only about 20% of the vocabulary of modern English is is Germanic in that way. The other 80% are from French and from Spanish and from Latin and from all these other languages, including, of course, Urdu. Now, we're not talking about any one language um, these days becoming a really dominant feature of the scene, I mean, uh, certainly in the olden days, French and Latin were the two big influences on English, as everybody learning English knows. But these days, if if we were to ask our questioner, uh, how many Urdu words have come into English? um, All of them, I mean. You can find this out easily by going to uh, the online Oxford English Dictionary. Mm -hmm. Well, what are we talking about, Luke? You know, a hundred, a couple of hundred, three hundred? I don't know, but it's hundreds rather than tens of thousands. Yeah. And we are talking about a language which has over a million words in it. Nobody knows how many words English has got, but at least that. And so no new cluster of words coming into English, A, are going to come in all at once. So we're not faced with a sudden tidal wave of new words. They come in drip, drip, drip like this. I I, I know what aloo is. I I, I order sagaloo and so on at my local Indian and things like this. Um, I, I don't think of it as a as an alien word anymore. It's just a word for a particular kind of dish that's come from a particular part of the world, and I just assimilated that uh, as I encountered the experience, and that's typically what what happens. So the the people I think tend to overestimate the influence of loan words into any language, um, and in a case like English, <laughs> the uh, the fears are completely unfounded. It okay. seems to.
1: Okay, all right. uh next question is from Gilmani. I'm not sure where Gilmani's from actually, but um Gilmani says, "My question for David Crystal is what's the future of the English language? Will it be the same or will it be a little bit different since we know that English has changed over the decades? So how is English going to change? That's a massive question, but um I don't know if yeah. you can summarize it for us, but how how do you expect it to change in the coming years?
0: Absolutely an unanswerable question. The one thing you should never do with language is try to predict its future. Uh, you You can look at the past and say to yourself, was that particular development in the past predictable? And the answer is, no, it wasn't. Let's go back to the year 1000 AD. Would you have predicted in 100 years' time that suddenly everybody in your country would be beginning to speak French? And that so many French words are suddenly coming into the language. You couldn't because you couldn't predict 1066, the Battle of Hastings. Mm. Similarly, you know, transfer that argument now throughout the history of the language. And you find that uh, the the reasons for the change in a language are totally bound up with political reasons, military reasons, economic reasons, and so on. Um, A language adapts to suit the circumstances in which it finds itself. So to predict the future of a language is to predict the future of society. And who can predict that these days? Who would have predicted Donald Trump? Who would have predicted Brexit, you know? And as soon as you get these different things coming in, there's always a linguistic implication. I mean, Brexit is a very good case in point. If the UK leaves the European Union, what will happen to English in Europe? Well, my answer to that is not very much. It'll still be a very important player because Europe still wants to trade with the rest of the world that uses English. But it will certainly change its character in unpredictable ways because there won't be so many native speakers in the corridors of power as they are at the moment. And uh, other influences will will start to manifest themselves and the language will develop a sort of Euro-English that, that uh, hasn't emerged yet. So... I I never predict the future um, when it comes to English. All I can say with certainty is that it will continue
1: to change, will continue to diversify, as it always has done in the past. Right. OK, thank you very much. Uh, Next question is from Jairo from Tenerife. And Jairo says this, I'm studying an English and Spanish linguistics and philology degree And even though I like it, it can be really hard at times. So what recommendations would you give me to make the burden of vast information more manageable in the time allotted? Oh, gosh, another
0: very difficult question without knowing the detail of the situation. Yeah. um, And knowing exactly what's involved and how the syllabus is operating and how many hours and so on and so forth. Um, What I do find is that uh, if, if too many historical facts are presented to a learner um, without enough um, historical background, it can become a huge burden. I found this myself when I was first learning about the history of English. And um, at my university, uh, I was being taught at the same time related languages to English like Gothic uh, and old high German and Frisian and uh, Old Norse and things like this. Mm. And it was all coming at me from all sorts of directions and I was mixing them up and I was having real trouble and, and oh, I, yeah, I sympathise with the questioner here. If I were doing it, I would not present these languages in that kind of way. Philology, if it's just philology, is just the same awfulness as grammar if it is just traditional grammar, you know. Yeah. First thing I would do is I'd explore the society in which these languages operated. Uh, What was it like to be a goth in those days? What was it like to be an Old Norse speaker in those days? Who were they? Where did they live? How did they live? Where did they travel? And all the rest of it. And as we're doing that, let's pick up some of the words that identify some of the things that they used and some of the stories that they told and some of the sagas that they delivered and all of this. Oh, and by the way, while we're doing this, let's just pick up a few little bits of... uh, of grammar here and there how would you say how are you in old norse for instance that kind of thing in other words adopt some of the techniques of modern english language teaching you know communicative and all the rest of it mm. into the philological domain now the reason why this isn't done is because most philologists have no idea what i'm talking about <laughs> you know they simply do not have this kind of um broader sociolinguistic to some extent psycholinguistic Um, background to their studies Mm. I would make a distinction here between philology and historical linguistics you see Mm. a philologist works traditionally on written texts and sound changes and things like that in a rather abstract sometimes dry as dust sort of manner and and that can be I, I I have little sympathy with that approach I mean I recognize its importance in the history of language study but I far prefer the more socially aware um approach to the history of language whether it's English or Spanish or what have you um, which doesn't just ask the question what happened in the history of these languages but and, and when did it happen but why did it happen and in what circumstances did it happen and let's explore the nature of the
1: people who made it happen
0: and when you go down that line then I think it eases the learning task considerably
1: right okay that's very useful uh, thank you very much. Uh, my next question is from Kat, who originally comes from Russia, but she has been living in Germany for for a few years. And Kat writes this: She says, "I'm very confused about English syntax. I spent many years studying German grammar and syntax, but it's of little use for learning English. German and English appear so similar, especially the words, and yet so different. For example, the sentence structure. At the same time, I just feel that something is completely different, but I can't." Point out the difference. Could you please tell us a little bit about the sentence structure and logic um, uh, of the syntax of English? Perhaps you could compare it to the syntax of other languages.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> come on, cat. Um, I mean, you know, you're you're asking for a book. <laughs> Uh, essentially, and when you do write a grammar book on English syntax, well, take the big comprehensive grammar of the English language by Randolph Quirk and his associates. Mm-hmm. It's, it's you know, it's eighteen hundred pages. It's uh, uh, two point four kilograms in weight. And, and most of that is syntax, you know, because English has a very um, simple morphology, really. Word structure is is relatively easy compared with German. I mean, how many word endings are there in English? You know, like plural S and ED for past tense and so on, just a dozen or so. Yeah. Uh, whereas in German, you know, there are lots and lots and lots um, and Latin even more and so on. Um, and so uh, the difference between English and German is is p- partly morphological, Uh, but also very largely syntactic. Well, if she thinks that the difference between English and German is dramatic, she should try learning Chinese or or something where the differences are much, much greater. In actual fact, the syntactic structure of English and German is very close. As as you'd expect, the languages only diverged 2,000 years ago. You know, it's not that long ago. Mm. And When I learned German for the first time, I've never been very fluent in it, but I found myself... Um, using English syntax in German. Um, and all right, I was getting it wrong every now and again because the word order was a bit different. And so sometimes I would put the verb at the beginning where it should have gone at the end and things like that. But everybody understood me. They just realized I hadn't learned the rule properly yet. And conversely, um, when, when a German person comes to me and says, I have English spoken, uh, I don't say, I haven't understood you. Um, yeah. I realize that the, the, you know the word order is different in that, Tiny respect because the rest of the sentence is perfectly clear. Yeah, and so um, I don't actually find there to be that much difference, though the points of difference are certainly very noticeable. Yeah. So I, I, my my sort of reverse question to Cat would be, you know, why are you so worried about these these local areas of syntactic difference between English and German? You know, what is it that has that has uh, caused this to be a, a barrier in your in your learning process? Yeah. And, um, you know, when you start to explore that kind of question, it, it almost always ends up with a discussion of um, of identity rather than intelligibility. Right. You know, that once again, uh, to, to, to German English is different from British English. Uh, when I, by German English, I don't mean the English of people who haven't learned, uh, the English of German people who haven't learned English well. I mean english or german people who have learned english well and who still make it distinctively german just like your french people um ha- have made it distinctively french yes and when you go down that road um i think you sometimes find that there's a kind of hidden reason sometimes a, a psychological reason
1: why a particular syntactic structure has proved to be difficult to acquire mm-hmm. okay um well there you go cats right back at you um now um On the subject of language and psychology, I've got a question from a listener called Wesley, and uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, Wesley wrote this. "Um, I have several questions for Professor David Crystal. The first is whether people who speak different languages think differently. I mean if they understand and perceive the world in different ways. For example, I've heard that while in some places people perceive two colours and give each of them a name, somewhere else there might be others who perceive those two colours as only one because they only have one name for them. Uh, Another example I have in mind is how we position adjectives in a sentence in English compared to in Romance languages. In English, adjectives usually come before the noun they describe. Uh, Romance languages, on the other hand, tend to place adjectives after the noun so in English we first refer to the characteristics of something before we say what it is and in romance languages we start with a noun and then describe it. Does that affect in any way the way that we think?
0: Uh, Yes is the short answer. I mean once upon a time people felt uh, the answer was a definite yes that no two languages um, think, the people of no two language backgrounds think in the same kind of way. Yeah. Uh, to which the obvious answer was, well, hang on a minute, um, we can translate easily enough between these languages, can't we? And certainly it is the case that if you translate from English into French and French into English, I can understand what a person is saying and they can understand me with, without without this fundamentally altering my, my mindset about the way in which... Um, French people think or the way in which they think British people think mm-hmm. the fact that it actually goes one way or the other doesn't seem to make much difference from that point of view. And so there was that view and, and people would then say, no, there, there isn't really any difference. Translation proves that um, we actually all have the same mindset among the languages of the world. And then there was a reaction against that uh, where people said, well, hang on a minute. It's actually rather difficult to translate sometimes. And sometimes there isn't a word in the other language for what I want to say. And sometimes there isn't a construction in the other language. And people began to realize that there was a more nuanced answer to this question than had been discussed before. And so when you actually look at a, a, a ask a translator, I I used to do this um, with colleagues some years ago. What proportion of the words in a dictionary, if if you were writing a French-English dictionary, what proportion of the words in it would you find difficult to translate because there, as it were, isn't a French word for it or there isn't an English word for, for the concept or whatever? Mm. Well, the concepts vary in the way that your know, questioner has just asked. And the answer varies depending upon which language you're thinking of. But with French and English, people used to say, oh, I suppose about 10% of the words or 15% of the words I have difficulty with. The rest of the time, it's fine. Mm -hmm. But if you say if it's English and Chinese, the figure is nearer 40 or 50 percent of the words are difficult to translate because the languages, of course, and the mindsets and the cultures are so, so different from each other. Mm. So there isn't a single answer. But what we do find is when you do psycholinguistic experiments, it's not so much that um, I cannot see the colors that are uh, in the language that r- represents them lexically as mm. different. Mm. I can see that they are different colours. Having the different words certainly makes it easier for me to talk about these colours and to identify them and to locate them in the society where they are found. If I don't have words for it, I will find it more difficult to do that. But I can still see the colours. It's not If I don't have the language to, to, do, to talk about it, I unless I haven't colorblind or something, I will still be able to see the difference between that shade of green, that shade of blue. I mean, for instance, in Welsh, the one word is used for green and blue. Um, mm. So you talk about the sky being X uh, and the sea being X and X is the same word. Does that mean I can't tell the difference between, you know, the, the sky and the sea or... Or the green of vegetation. And of course it doesn't. I can see that perfectly well. Um, It's just that for uh, this particular language, that distinction is not so important as it might be in some other language. And in any case, I can still tell the difference and talk about it in a circumlocutory kind of way. Right. Yeah. the underlying the underlying fallacy luke is to think that it's words that translate between languages it isn't it's sentences that translate between languages and it's the totality of a group of words that identify a particular concept that enters into my brain and makes me able to talk about what it is i'm looking at
1: so for, so for example uh, if i mean in in uh, some cultures if they have 100 words for snow in, in English, we would just find another way of describing that different type of snow, you know, yeah. rather than it, using the, that, that particular word. We would just say it's a kind of powdery sort of snow, for yeah, example. Exactly.
0: Exactly. That. I mean, to take the Eskimo example, the Inuit example, uh, people used to say uh, there's a word in Inuit for snow that you use to build an igloo with. Right. We have no word in English for that. True does that mean I can't see that this is snow that you use to build an igloo with? Yeah,
1: and we have a sentence, we have like, you know, we can make a <laughs> sentence, which is snow that, uh, or this big noun phrase or whatever, uh, snow that you use to big, build an igloo with that kind of does the job.
0: Yeah, I- exactly that. So that the underly- underlying that question from your questioner is is the fallacy that
1: only words are the important units of translation, and they are not. Okay, All right there you go wesley um next question is from mayumi who's from japan and her question goes like this why um do british people tend to use indirect language and hesitate to say no and also frequently say sorry in various situations is there some kind of story from linguistic history
0: oh well that's a matter of um of yeah I mean, yes, there is, uh, although it's mm. sometimes difficult to find out exactly what it is. No, we're talking here about um, a more general, uh, we're talking pragmatics now. This is the subject of pragmatics. Why do people speak in the way they do? Um, why do they say one thing rather than another? Why do they use this kind of politeness rather than another? Yeah. I go to Japan and I immediately encounter differences of honorifics of one sort on another. I am um, called um, crystal-san or crystal-sensei and mm. so on. And these suffixes identify the type of person that I am and the sort of respect that they're offering towards me. If I were to say to the Japanese people, why are you doing that? We don't do that in English. They will say because we're Japanese. That's the way our society is. That's the way it's developed over the centuries. Exactly the same sort of thing happens when you examine politeness norms in other countries as well. And you have to learn what these norms are, and they aren't always obvious, because the way in which one is taught um, sometimes assumes that your politeness norms will translate into the other language without any question mark at all. So to go back to a more familiar example uh, for me, Luke, Mm -hmm. uh, when I was learning French, I was taught that um, uh, please is s'il vous plaît, and thank you is merci. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. So every time I go to France and I want to say please, I will say, s'il vous plaît, won't I? Mm-hmm. And if I want to say thank you. I will say merci, won't I? And I get some very strange looks because, of course, you don't always say s'il vous plaît in the cases where you and I in English would say please. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it sounds quite rude almost. Uh, it's almost as if you're saying, if you please, uh, to a French listener, right. rather than uh, the way you'd use it in, in, uh, in English. We don't always, always say thank you in the way. I have a grandson um, in Amsterdam mm. who's growing up um, bilingually in English and Dutch. Uh, he's only 10, 11 now, but when he was sort of 8, 9, or thereabouts, and perhaps still, um, he'd get into an awful muddle Because the Dutch simply don't say please and thank you in the way that English people say please and thank you. He is taught by his mother, say please all the time, say thank you all the time. Mm. In Dutch, doesn't happen. And so he's translating from Dutch into English and dropping his pleases and thank yous and getting told off by his mother for doing what is only natural in Dutch. (laughs) And this kind of thing happens all the time. Uh, Should you say sorry, sorry, sorry everywhere? Well, apparently an awful lot of British people do. But this isn't necessarily the case in American English or in Australian English or whatever it might be. And so one simply has to learn these norms as part of the social conventions of the language. Accept them for what they are um laugh at them if if you like uh but that is the way things are if you want to identify with the culture you find yourself in then you're going to have to learn these politeness norms
1: i think that um the politeness norms between the japanese and the brits are fairly similar i i think i mean for example um i mean in france people are very direct and if they've got something negative to say they'll probably just say it uh whereas in the uk we tend to go around the houses a bit more and uh, say these slightly more ambiguous things. You know, like if you don't agree, you might say, well, I'm not quite sure I agree with that. Yeah,
0: this, this is British temperament, as they say. The, this is the British way of life. This is the way, this is the, 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 the typical British person. It's satirised often, isn't it? Of yeah, course. yeah. It's parodied and things like that. But that doesn't make it any the less um, a reality for the people who use it. Or to take another example... You know, do you use, uh, do you address somebody by their first name or not? Mm. Well, you know, it depends, doesn't it? It depends on your generation. It depends on on your age. depends on your gender, your society, your occupation, your social role and all sorts of things. Very different in America. Uh, So whereas in this country, uh, it takes me ages sometimes to say to somebody, look, you know, call me David, will you? Um, yes, Professor. Uh, no, David. Please. Mm. In America, you know, it's a uh, "Hey, Dave, how are you?" You know, uh, and they wouldn't ever dream of calling me Professor Crystal on, on a first meeting. I mean, yes, you know, yes. And yes. So there are all these differences all over the place. You just have to accept them, learn about them first of all, and accept them and um, if you want
1: to identify with them. So it's different. they're just different cultural conventions and to understand why these differences happen, uh, we'd need to explore all of the, I don't know, what how you describe them, like the sociological factors, the, s- oh,
0: yeah. the psychological Synchron- factors. And synchronically, not diachronically, by which I mean uh, your question says, is there a history behind them? Well, there may well be, but that history is probably um, uh, unavailable. I mean, one one doesn't know very often why, or when some of these conventions developed, all you can do is a synchronic that is look, uh, study, that is, look at the way these things are being used now yeah. and see if you can identify certain circumstances in which these usages turn up. And increasingly, this kind of information is available. You know, and once upon a time in dictionaries, you'd never get information of this kind, but some of the more modern dictionaries are now beginning to have little essays about usage, um, which help enormously in... Uh, queuing you in as to when a particular construction or word or whatever should be
1: used. Right, um, Naomi does go on to say that, uh, you know, she gives her own theory which is that in, in my Japanese culture, as far as I know, we also find similar tendencies because we've lived in this tiny island and if people said whatever they wanted and behaved without caring about other people in this small area or even argued with each other, they could possibly end up being expelled from this small society or finding life difficult and this can be one of the reasons why we have these tendencies. Tendencies as well maybe it's something to do with that you know the geographical limitations um but um you know oh,
0: well it, it, she's exactly right that that is that is the social reason why these things develop right which language, language isn't just for intelligibility as we were talking earlier it is for identity now what does identity mean it means you're part of a group you're part of a community you're part of a a, a, a social community which can be anything it can be um, a geographical area it can be uh, a, a social area like um, uh, a, a university setting or or a hospital setting or what might, might be an occupational area it could be anything but if when you go into that community area you find that it will have its norms of behaviour not just language of course but how you should dress mm. uh, when you should arrive when you should leave uh, whether you should do this or that whatever With language, likewise, there will be these norms of behaviour and you have to learn them. As they used to say about slang, the chief use of slang is to show that you're one of the gang. And being one of the gang is absolutely crucial. And the way in which you show you're one of the gang is by using the sorts of conventions we're talking
1: about now more than anything else. Right. OK. I've got just two more questions for you, if that's OK. Yeah. Uh, uh, The next one is from Antonio, who is from Spain. And he wrote this, my question for David Crystal, Uh, Apple, Google, Microsoft and other companies are working on translators in real time based on artificial intelligence. So uh, we can speak in Spanish with a French person and he will hear French while he speaks in French and we hear Spanish. Skype apparently has options for eight languages. Uh, What do you think about the uh, AI related to language learning and will AI replace our need to learn other languages?
0: Right, Um, this is again another instance of the intelligibility versus identity argument Mm -hmm. All these AI solutions address intelligibility Identity is irrelevant as far as they're concerned Mm -hmm. Now when you look at these um, Babel fish as the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy used to call it Mm -hmm. uh, Developments um, Yes, they are are beginning to do the job reasonably well In a hundred years time it will be pretty damn perfect I should think at the moment, none of these systems uh, operate on much more than a very limited vocabulary range of sentences. If you type anything into Google Translate, it will give you the gist very, very well. I've often used it, mm. but you can immediately see a hundred errors of one kind and another that in a hundred years time will all be sorted out. I have no doubt. So let's imagine a situation like you see in many science fiction films uh, where this um, Babelfish concept is operating perfectly. And yes, as your questioner says, speaking Spanish comes out in French at the other end. Fine. Yeah. We solve an awful lot of the problems of the world in that way. Mm. But but identity hasn't been addressed at all. I still want to be French. I don't want to be Spanish. Um, I still want to have my French language. I don't want to have it replaced by the Spanish language, nor is there anything in the AI situation which suggests that those substitutions will take place. So I don't see any diminution in the number of languages in the world as a result of this ability to uh, operate uh, electronically in a translational mode. Um, I see identity being just as important as it ever was. There may, there may be some interactions of a, of a kind that I can't predict, but on the whole, um, I don't think it's going to affect the language diversity situation in a very, very dramatic way at all. What it might mean, um, however, and this is important to note, is that um, AI might make the need for a global language um, redundant, a global lingua franca redundant. Mm. To go back to an earlier questioner, what is the future of the English language? Well, If AI is going to be as successful as it might well be, why bother learning an international language then one day? Because we don't need it anymore. Well, there are various answers to that as well. Uh, One is that if you put your trust in technology totally, um, it, uh, it may let you down. It will depend on energy sources, for example. Are they going to be absolutely predictable in the future? Will Mm -hmm. we always have our batteries charged, as it were, when we meet somebody in the street in the middle of uh, the Gobi Desert? Mm Or wherever (laughs) we might. The post-apocalyptic wasteland of uh, wherever we are. wherever we are. Um, Secondly, um, will it be the case that uh, the AI uh, systems will be as perfect as a human translator? A human translator has an ability to add what we might call a a, a cultural sense, a a nuanced approach to translation. It isn't the case that there is always one translation for a particular word or phrase or sentence, is it, Luke? I mean, sometimes you have four alternatives. Yes. Um, And... A human translator often chooses between equally competing alternatives, knowing the situation as it is at the moment between the people who are talking to each other. In politics, for example, this is absolutely critical. Mm. Um, Now, I'm not sure that an AI system is going to be able to replicate all those um, factors, at least not in the foreseeable future. I mean, maybe in the long, long, long term. Uh, it may be possible to replicate the brain in, in such a sophisticated way that this issue will disappear but in the long 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 term we might all be speaking Martian by then who knows what's going to happen you know <laughs>
1: yes yes, <laughs> yes. so uh, but but will ai replace our need to learn other languages you know i mean it's it might not um it, it might not replace the diversity of languages but will people still be learning other languages
0: well I guess for some of the major, the most powerful languages in the world, it will reduce the motivation to learn them. Um, The uh, the, it's ignoring a very important factor in language learning, and that is that. I mean, why do you learn another language? Yeah, Uh, yeah. It's not just to be understood; it's to become aware of of the culture, of the history, of the literature. Of, of all the wonderfulness of the other language that sense of personal satisfaction that you get from being able to speak in another language and know that you are being able to read uh you know Voltaire or Moliere or wherever mm. in French and not rely on translation. Um, The satisfaction that comes from that is surely not going to be replaceable by whatever a machine is going to enable you to do. So when you look at the reasons for language learning that go beyond straight intelligibility, I think there are lots of reasons why one will carry on wanting to learn other languages Mm, for different reasons than there are today, perhaps. And then the other factor is this. Um, All right. So maybe there will one day be a perfectly satisfactory method of translating from English into French, into Spanish, into Russian, into German, into Chinese and so on. But English into uh, Shona in Zimbabwe uh, or one of the other five or six thousand languages in the world, which are not powerful languages. But are used by small numbers in these different parts of the world, yet in those parts of the world they are very important local languages indeed. Well, one day, of course, there'll be no limit to the power of AI, I suppose. But for the, you know, really, not just short term, but in the medium to long term, I, ca- I just simply cannot see that it would be economically viable um, to develop that kind of technological solution for languages where um the only the only way in which one is going to foster a sense of uh, interaction is going to be through the traditional methods
1: mhm okay all right uh, there you are antonio there's the answer to your question um so well, an an answer, an answer. Sure there'll be lots of other answers too yes i'm sure yes absolutely um so my next question is from a listener called jack and we don't know where he comes from he's slightly mysterious and Uh, I should let you know that I don't know why, right, but Jack always writes comments on my website in a certain dialect, okay? He always writes in this Ali G dialect. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which I actually think is quite interesting. I think it's probably evidence of how good he is at English because he can clearly write in a normal style. I've seen him do it, but he chooses to adopt this specific form of English, and I think that if he can do that, then it probably shows you know, a great ability to shift between different registers and dialects. If he can break the rules, as it were, yeah. I presume it means he knows that the rules are there in the first place and so on. But for some reason, he chooses to write comments in this kind of lingo. So, are you ready? I'm, now, I'm going to read it out in an Ali G style, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Okay? So, here's Jack's comment written in his Ali G lingo. All right? So, I is not that learned, but I also has got questions for Professor David Crystal. Dear Sir, Buyakasha, it's a well big honour to have you here on the podcast. You is the only person me respects in the field of linguistics after Norman Chomsky and Stephen de who is obviously Noam Chomsky and Stephen Krashen. And his question, which is then written in normal English, goes like this. Uh, What advice would you give to an English language learner to improve his or her language ability? Should the student focus on form, like grammar and vocab, or should the student focus on meaning and let the subconscious do the rest? Well, that's me questions there, big man. I has to say you is the shining crystal in the field of linguistics. Big up yourself, Professor Crystal. Respect Westside so uh, yeah. i hope you don't mind i hope you don't mind being addressed in that in that way i i is having no problem with that respect back <laughs> to your man no question i know ali g um yeah so what advice would you give to an english language learner to improve his or her english you know bearing in mind that you know you're not an english teacher should yep. students focus on form like grammar or should they uh, focus on meaning and let the grammar take care of itself
0: and the answer is both, of course. It has to be both. There has to be a balance between the two. Um, form without uh, use, uh, let's, let's summarize that in that way, form without use mm-hmm. is pointless. Um, you end up ha- having learned a lot of rules and use it, uh, but you don't know how to use them. Yeah. Conversely, use without form is pointless. Um, it's no good uh, learning a particular use of a language if you don't know uh, the, the forms that go with it. Um, to make it an appropriate use in that particular circumstance. Uh, I mean, I'll give you an example of the of the way in which the two things interact, where well, you need y- y- meaning and and use. Remember semantics and pragmatics from earlier on in this mm-hmm. chat. That um, you uh, people are taught. How old are you? As a sentence in English. Mm-hmm. And they are drilled in this, how old are you? I'm 33. How old are you? I'm 25, and so on. Now you ask me, how old are you, Luke? And you tell me the answer, and so on. Now we've learned the usage of that construction in English. Yeah. True enough from a form point of view, but from a use point of view, you haven't even begun to learn that usage. Because the question is, when do you actually use the question, how old are you, in English? And the answer is, hey, hang on a minute. It's actually rather a dangerous question to ask somebody. Mm. How old are you? When do people actually ask that question? And it's usually in a situation where, hey, young man, how old are you? You know, uh, should you be doing that? Or uh, I go to the doctor's and he looks at me and says, how old are you, Mr. Crystal? Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know? Or uh, a little girl at a birthday party. How old are you, darling? I'm four, granny. How old are you, granny? Oh, no, dear, you're not supposed to ask her age. You suddenly realize that all the circumstances in which you use the question, how old are you, are tricky circumstances. And you need to be taught that at the same time as you're learning the form. So form and function have got to go together. Now, when you learn function, what you find is that Um, Many of the situations are non-standard situations. In other words, you break the rules and some of the most uh, desirable um, circumstances in which you want to use language. I speak now to somebody who's uh, perhaps a a young person. keen on the internet or keen on rap and hip-hop and all of that sort of thing some of those very desirable situations break the rules all the time mm. that's function that's their purpose that's what they're there for we all break the rules some of the time uh, I've learnt the uh, standard English I am not um, like you have Luke but sometimes I might say to you well if it ain't broke don't fix it right if, if it ain't broke you know, and I deliberately use non-standard English to make a kind of jocular point. Now, the Ali G example is another instance, but writ large. This is now a, a, a lovely example and, and, and all respect to your man um, for being able to switch between these two registers in that kind of way. Uh, now, the question of whether it's appropriate to do so in one circumstance rather than another um, is open in your podcast. Um, evidently, you don't mind this sort of thing. You welcome it, perhaps. You like it. Yes. Imagine another internet situation where uh, if he sent in a message in an allergy kind of way, it would simply not get published. Absolutely. Uh, Because the web owner would simply diss that kind of uh, variety and say, it is not appropriate for my website. Mm. So you have to be rather careful. You have to sort of think out in advance. You have to be sure of yourself, in other words. You have to be confident Mm. in choosing the varieties that you think will work and this is one of the real criteria for genuine fluency in a language that you have a confident sense of being able to choose which variety works in which situation um before you actually exploit it
1: right okay those are comments about you know jack's choice of uh, speaking like G or not Okay, for, for my listeners, right, should they be burying their, their head in a grammar book and looking at the rules and, you know, doing the exercises, or should they just close the grammar book and just sort of listen to, to podcasts or just read books and just focus on understanding the stories, understanding the, the conversations that they hear in, in episodes of, of my podcast? You know, like, uh, should, uh, yeah. yeah, I think you understand.
0: Yeah. yeah, the answer is both, but in a structured sort of way. Right, Okay. Um. In the early days of communicative uh, teaching, uh, this, the structured side was lost sight of. I mean, there was a sensible idea here, which was that uh, we don't just want form, we want real use. So here we are in in this lesson. You're going to, in the first half of the lesson, do some structured formal work. And then here's a real situation that we've recorded for you from this pub or from this street mm. or from this film or whatever it might be. Now, just listen to it. You won't understand all of it, but you'll nonetheless get a sense of how the language is really used. Well, there was a certain usefulness in that, but an awful lot of learners felt that the gap between where they were up to on the formal side And being dropped into the deep end of this conversation on the other side was too great. Mm. So I think it makes more sense. Uh, I mean, the need to do both is essential. I I would never like if I were a teacher, I would never want to have a class where the only thing I did in that class was a bit of structure work of formal kind of one kind or another. I would always want to expose them in a listening comprehension kind of way to something that illustrated the structure i've been talking about but heard it available or seen it because it's in books as uh, in literature you know as well as in speech um in in the real world but i would also want just as i have graded the formal side of my teaching i would also want to grade the uh, the, the functional side as well because some real life situations are a jolly side easier to listen to or to read than others and it's that side of the teaching business that hasn't developed as well as the formal side lots of textbooks as you well know um where the graded structures are there from beginning to end but how many textbooks do you know where the functional side is graded from beginning to end right and so that's where the weakness is it seems to me but the principle
1: is try and balance the two of Okay. Okay. Fantastic. I just have one more question for you and that's going back to uh, the conversation I had with my friends on the podcast recently. Um remember we were, we actually we were talking about things like um how people get upset by uh, you know f- what they'd call failing standards in English and things like that and one of the questions that kept coming up in our conversation was are we better or worse at communicating than we used to be? I know it's a, it might seem like a bit of a odd question out of context but I'm going to ask you, what, what do you think? Are we better at communicating than we used to be, or are we worse? And is it even possible to measure?
0: Uh, I think it is possible to measure. I don't think it's possible to give a, a simple answer, a yeah, yes or no answer, because the circumstances vary so much. It depends on the situation in which you find yourself. I wrote a book uh, last year. Uh, on, it's precisely this thing. It's called The Gift of the Gab, right. how, elo- how Eloquence Works. And I explored the, the nature of eloquence and what it means to be eloquent and, uh, and how it has developed over the centuries and so on and so forth. And what you see is that eloquent standards do vary enormously from generation to generation and indeed from circumstance to circumstance and sometimes even from individual to individual. If you want an example of that last kind, think President Obama and think President Trump, two totally different kinds of eloquence The latter being so uneloquent according to traditional standards that people sometimes think he is incoherent and there may be some truth in that that's a political issue we could go into now but the point is that these uh, is one worse than the other well it depends in all sorts of circumstances all sorts of factors that come to your mind now at this particular Mm -hmm. point Mm -hmm. there is certainly a general view Um, it's largely mythical but it's certainly out there that young people today are not as eloquent as they used to be. This is another example of the old argument. You know, I can trace that back 200 years. People say young people of today aren't as eloquent as they used to be. And if you say, what exactly do you mean? Um, They will say, uh, oh, listen to the way in which young people today keep saying like all the time, for instance. Mm. Uh, So I was like, wow, and she did like this. And I went like that. That shows they are not being eloquent. What they forget is that the people who are the youngsters who are using like are actually using it in the middle of a monologue that sometimes goes on for minutes in a hugely eloquent kind of way, but using a style that is apparently um, not liked by older people who don't find who might say, you know, rather than like, yes, or see rather than like, as they give their monologues. So the style has changed. And when style changes, people can condemn it and say, oh, people aren't as eloquent as they used to be. But it's a different kind of eloquence and one that has to be respected in its own terms. So long as it, again, doesn't, isn't overused, so long as it doesn't get in the way of communication. There are some people who are not eloquent. Uh, sometimes you ask a politician a straight question and the answer comes back, Yes, well, you see, I mean, you know, uh, of course, uh, put it another way, um, let me put it like this, and and you get that kind of waffle coming out. All right, there are cases like that. But when I look at the English language as a whole, as used by people generally, I would say that um, eloquence hasn't deteriorated in any noticeable kind of way. And the people who say that it has, when you actually explore what they're thinking of, turns out very largely that they're thinking of um, things like like, uh, which, when you explore that further, turns out to be, in fact, a feature simply of a different kind of eloquence.
1: Mm, mm, OK. Um, I, uh, what do you think of the way Donald Trump uses language?
0: Well, he he's developed a different style, um, which uh, has its own values, uh,
1: which evidently are
0: appreciated by enough people to mean he's now president of the United States. But it's a very different kind of style. What he's done is he avoids the the rhetorical style of somebody like Obama, um, who would produce very balanced sentences Mm. with complex structures inside and a very rhythmical, um, almost metrical at times, approach to speech. Mm. And he has introduced into his speech what you might call uh, everyday conversational um, strategies. Right. Uh, he, He will say things like, look, believe me, folks. Um, You know, believe me, folks, can you can you imagine Obama saying that? Yeah. yeah, You know, that kind of everyday use of language, very conversational strategies um, he puts in. Um, He doesn't use carefully crafted sentences. He will change direction in the middle of a sentence again in a very conversational kind of way. Mm. Now. Uh, Looking at it from a semantic point of view, sometimes it's extremely difficult to understand exactly what he's saying. And this is the main criticism of him as speaking in an incoherent kind of way. But when you are a senior politician and you start speaking like the man in the street or the woman in the street and people sort of say, hey, you know, he's like me. He's like us. I'm going to vote for him. Well, that's evidently what happened Now, in terms of uh, traditional standards of eloquence. He has broken all the rules in the book. Uh, and maybe, and I have actually sensed in some of his recent speeches a, a slight move in the direction of a rather more formal style. Um, but certainly during his campaign, uh, the contrast between him and say Hil- and Hillary Clinton was quite dramatic mm. in terms of the formality uh, and colloquialism balance uh, that the speakers introduced into their yeah. into their utterances.
1: It's, it's all absolutely fascinating. And I could continue asking you questions for ages and ages. But um, I think that I must let you go because I'm sure you've got plenty of things uh, going on today. Um, thank you so much for talking to me and talking to all my listeners today on my podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, um, you know, have a have a lovely evening.
0: Well, th- thank you, Luke. And thanks, too, for, to people who have sent in the questions, fascinating questions, as, as always. You know, good luck with the podcasts. They've been successful so far. hope they continue to be so. All power to you.
1: Thank you very much. I look forward to reading your latest publications when they, when they come out. What's the next one? Uh, the next one is uh, one that's just out. It's called The Story of Bee, which is um, uh, a book
0: entirely about the verb to be in the English language. Mm mm-hmm. The one that's coming out in September or October is called, um, what's it called? It's called We Are Not Amused. Mm. And the subtitle is uh, Victorian Views on Pronunciation as Told in the Pages of Punch. So it's a description of the attitudes towards pronunciation that were around in Victorian times, which are still relevant
1: today. Very interesting. OK, I look forward to reading it. Um, David Crystal, again, thank you so much uh, and have a, have a nice evening. Thank you. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I really enjoyed that. It was amazing to talk to David Crystal on this podcast. And I had loads of other questions that I could have asked him. Um, And um, I think there was so much interesting content in what he said in this conversation. And there's so much to take from it. Uh, These two episodes, I think, are really worth listening to several times so that you can really get a grip on what he said and really absorb it all. Um, If you sent in a question that I didn't ask, then I'm very sorry about that. Uh, What I should do is a follow-up episode to uh, to this pair of episodes that I've just done. I should do a follow-up episode in which I consolidate a lot of what David Crystal said and also highlight various things that you can apply to your whole approach and attitude towards learning English. So watch out for that. Um, I hope to get that done, although uh, I'm known for making these little promises. I think I'll do that. I'll do this episode. I'll do that. And then I kind of end up being sidetracked by other things. Um, But anyway, check out David's work um, at davidcrystal.com. And he's got books about grammar Spelling, punctuation, accents, Shakespeare—pretty much any aspect of English—he's got it, and he always writes in a very clear and entertaining style. I'm not selling his work or anything; um, I just think it's genuinely good stuff that I would like to share with you. And this is why I'm so happy to have spoken to David Crystal on the podcast because he's brilliant, and you should definitely read his work okay right then so there you go how do you feel after that injection of sort of linguistics uh, into the podcast there i wonder how you feel after that so i look forward to reading your comments in the comments section if you've got them um, don't forget to join the mailing list uh, on every page of the website in the top right hand corner you'll find a little space where you can just put your name and email address and then every time i upload some new stuff um it will drop into your inbox in a in a convenient and yet discreet way um, and uh, it's not just episodes of the podcast. There are other things as well that pop up. For example, if I'm invited to take part in someone else's podcast, then I'll uh, publish a link to that, so you can find that. It won't come through in my RSS feed. Uh, you won't hear that, but uh, if you're in the email uh, list, then you'll get little, you know, little extra bits and pieces from time to time. Um, so there you go. What's up with you? How are you doing out there in podcast land? I hope you're doing well. Um, at the moment here, it's absolutely boiling hot. um, And uh, it's very humid. And it's like this all over Europe, as far as I know, including in England, where I'm certain that today people have been kind of going to work and uh, sort of, you know, walking into the office. And I'm sure everyone in England has been saying, oh, it's very, it's very close, isn't it today? It's, it's, It's so muggy, It's so muggy today. I don't like it when it's like this. You know, I like it when it's hot and dry, but not when it's so muggy and close like this. So uh, the words muggy and close, I'm sure, will be rippling across the United Kingdom, certainly England uh, at the moment, because those are the ways that you talk about humid weather uh, in England. And um, we do get quite a lot of humid weather in the summer. We seem to be having something of a heat wave at the moment, which is bringing with it this kind of humid uh, weather. And it's uh, it's very hot. And uh, when you're in the sun, it's extremely uh, hot. Uh, but there's also a bit of cloud cover and it, there's sort of moisture in the air, this humidity. And that makes it feel like the air is kind of very close to you. You feel a bit suffocated by it. And it, you get the impression that, you know, even your clothes are sticking... To, to your skin a little bit. Uh, and that's really what muggy means. It means kind of slightly uh, suffocatingly humid. Uh, muggy and close as well. And sticky is another word. It sounds a bit disgusting, isn't it, when you say sticky? But anyway, muggy and close, that's what people will be saying. Oh, it's so muggy today, isn't it? Uh, So there you go. I wonder if it's muggy or close or humid, wherever you are. Uh, Maybe you've got sort of beautiful, uh, dry uh, weather with clear blue skies. That's my favourite weather, I think. As long as the sky is clear and it's blue and it's quite dry, uh, I don't mind. But I don't like it to be too hot, of course, because being English, you know, can't can't take it. We spend most of the year going, oh, I wish it was hotter and more sunny. And then when it does actually uh, heat up, everyone's like, oh, God, it's so close, isn't it, today? Um, so anyway let us know how the weather is wherever you are and I've got people all over the world listening to this so I'm sure that there's all types of weather being experienced um, right now as you listen to this so let us know in the comments section thank you so much for listening again and uh, there'll be more episodes coming your way uh, fairly soon but for now it's time to say goodbye bye 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.